Hello and a warm welcome to the final programme in our present series here on Search for Truth. Brian, our Bible teacher, is looking at four good reasons to believe in God. Today we have the ultimate good reason, reason number four, and that's Jesus Christ himself. He came to this earth 2,000 years ago to tell us about God and why we need to believe. But there are some people today that doubt that Christ even existed. And Brian's going to look at some of the evidence which would tell us otherwise. So, over to Brian. Thanks, John. In the early chapters of his Bible letter to Christian believers at Rome 2,000 years ago, Paul, as we've been learning, presented four indisputable evidences which point beyond the shadow of a doubt to the existence of God. But you may ask, have they become weakened over the 2,000 years which has since run its course? Not a bit of it. In fact, they seem much more impressive today than they could ever have appeared 2,000 years ago. And they're easy to remember. You can remember them as all beginning with the letter C. There's the evidence from creation, the evidence from human conscience, and last week we thought about the evidence of communication as we considered the claim of the Bible to be the Word of God, a direct communication to us from the God who's there. Finally this week, and to complete our list of four C's, we have Christ himself, And so we come to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or sin-atoning sacrifice in his blood through faith. One very clear case of atheists not having a leg to stand on occurs in connection with what Professor Richard Dawkins says about Jesus Christ. He says, it is possible to make a serious case that Jesus never existed. This is nonsense. I'll confine my comments to two points. First of all, the historian Tacitus, no connection with the Bible, wrote in 115 AD of Jesus' existence by recording how Nero, in AD 64, put the blame for the fire of Rome onto the hated class of Christians, so named after their founder, whom he states suffered the death penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the then proconsul Pontius Pilate. Then there's W.H. Lecky, who wrote A History of Europe, in which he stated that the impact of the three public years of Jesus' ministry had a more profound impact than all the writings of moralists and philosophers that the world has ever had. More recently, former US President Ronald Reagan made a similar point when he said, Meaning no disrespect to the religious convictions of others, I still can't help wondering how we can explain away what to me is the greatest miracle of all and which is recorded in history. No one denies there was such a man, that he lived and that he was put to death by crucifixion. Where is the miracle I spoke of? Well, consider this and let your imagination translate the story into our own time, possibly to your own hometown. A young man whose father is a carpenter grows up working in his father's shop. One day he puts down his tools and walks out of his father's shop. He starts preaching on street corners and in the nearby countryside, walking from place to place, preaching all the while, even though he is not an ordained minister. He does this for three years. Then he's arrested, tried and convicted. There's no court of appeal, so he's executed at age 33 along with two common thieves. Those in charge of his execution roll dice to see who gets his clothing, the only possession he has. His family cannot afford a burial place for him, 
so he's interred in a borrowed tomb. End of story? No. This uneducated, propertyless young man who left no written word has for 2,000 years had a greater effect on all the world than all the rulers, kings, emperors, all the conquerors, generals and admirals, all the scholars, scientists and philosophers who have ever lived. All of them put together. How do we explain that? Unless he really was who he said he was. Notice Reagan said the opposite to Dawkins when he spoke of Jesus' historical existence as indisputable. In fact, there's much more documentary evidence for the life of Jesus Christ than there is for Julius Caesar, and you don't hear many people questioning Caesar as a historical character, do you? No fictional life could have the lasting impact which the life of Christ has had. Christianity continues as it began with the testimony of transformed lives. One of the primary evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day is the radical transformation of the earliest disciples from being fearful to becoming fearless, fearless witnesses who were prepared to die for their beliefs. But there are other major evidences for Jesus' resurrection, like the fact that it's exceedingly unlikely that a whole bunch of people were prepared to die for a hoax or a lie which they had deliberately invented. Then there's the evidence of a generation of numerous eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, and the clearest evidence of all, which people hostile to Christianity at that time tried to actively suppress. And what was that evidence? It was the empty tomb itself. Its existence, its empty existence, was conceded by those who had everything to gain by simply producing a body, if only they could. Yes, you can explore all the options, like Jesus only swooned and later revived, or his body was stolen, or his gullible followers were only hallucinating, but none of these fits the facts as well as the account which says that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. But don't just take my word for it. Simon Greenleaf was a professor at Harvard, a professor of law, in fact, an expert in handling the laws of evidence. He was supremely qualified to make a pronouncement on the quality of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ after making a detailed study of it all. And he did this starting from an initial sceptical point of view. He set out, as others have done, to demolish the myth of Jesus rising from the dead. But his integrity forced him to change his opinion and to change it completely once he studied everything. He concluded that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, in fact, the best supported event in all of history. The Apostle Paul says that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is vain. In other words, he admits this one event of Jesus' resurrection is the all-important test. And the thing is, it's something which can be tested. It's not something purely subjective in the mind of the believer. We can do what Simon Greenleaf did. So there is this real objective test which is decisive for Christianity. And in this postmodern age, that's vitally important. If you're serious about discovering the truth, you owe it to yourself to really investigate this one claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I also like to quote the refreshingly frank and even eloquent tribute given thoughtfully by Napoleon Bonaparte after he'd spent a lot of time thinking during a period of exile in his life. It's recorded that he said to one of his associates that he, Napoleon, had inspired multitudes 
with such an enthusiastic devotion that they'd have died for him. But he said to do that, it had been necessary for him to be visibly present with the electric influence of his looks, words and voice. Napoleon went on to say that Christ alone had succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it became insensible to the barrier of time and space. Across a chasm of 1800 years, Jesus Christ, he said, made a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. Jesus asks for the human heart. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith his demand is granted. Wonderful! In defiance of time and space, the spirit of man, with all its powers and faculties, becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe experience that supernatural love towards him. Napoleon commented, This phenomenon is unaccountable, and he said it was this that showed convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so we bring this series to a close. And in doing so, we remind ourselves that we've been looking at the early chapters of Paul's Bible letter to Christian believers at Rome 2,000 years ago. There, Paul presents four indisputable evidences which point beyond the shadow of any doubt to the existence of God. And they're easy to remember. You can remember them all as beginning with the letter C. There's the evidence from creation, chapter 1, verse 20. The evidence from human conscience, chapter 2, verse 15. The evidence of communication, chapter 3, verse 2. As we consider the claim of the Bible to be the Word of God, a direct communication to us from the God who's there. And as we've seen today, the best evidence of all, completing our list of four C's, is Christ himself. Finally, let me tell you about a woman who was catching a flight at the airport. She was in a mad rush, hadn't had time to eat on the way there, so she stops at the newsstand to buy a pack of cookies. Then she sits down at the gate where there's a table between her and an older man. But soon she can't believe her eyes when the man stretches over, picks up the pack of cookies from the table and helps himself to one. She's shocked but doesn't want to make a scene so just takes one herself, placing the pack back on the table. Surely the man won't have the nerve to repeat his action. But he did. Again he picks up the pack, looks at it thoughtfully, takes another cookie and after a little nibble proceeds to gobble it up. By now she's pretty well hopping mad. How dare he just help himself to her cookies? Quickly, she takes another herself. Now there's just the one left. Unbelievably, the chap reaches across again and picks out the last cookie, smiles, breaks it in half and pushes the last half towards her. She's ready now to make a scene. But the boarding call comes and the chap jumps up and with another smile he's gone. At the gate, the woman opens her bag to get her boarding pass. And it's then she discovers her pack of cookies still in the bag. She'd been the one helping herself, not him. The moral of that is that sometimes reality is a lot different from what we think. And we're in too much of a rush to check it out. We have our misconceived ideas about where we come from, what the purpose of life is, and where we're going afterwards, because we just feed on what society around us tells us, all the time wrongly believing it to be the truth. I urge you, to take a fresh look at things. Do yourself a favour. Check out whose bag of cookies you've been eating from.
Thanks for another useful talk today, Brian. I hope, like me, our listeners found it inspiring. If Brian's talk or this series, if you've been following, has raised any issues or questions for you, then please do write in. As usual, there's a transcript booklet available, and again, it's entirely free, and we don't share any of your details, but it is your last opportunity to send for it. So if you'd like us to send you copies, perhaps to pass on to a friend, then ask for the title, For Good Reasons to Believe in God. You can contact us by email or by post, and here's the address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And the email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Although if you use email to send for a booklet, please be sure to include your uh, postal address so we can send the booklet to you. Now, you can also find past programmes and useful material on our website, which is at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. Well, that's all we have for today, and it's the end of this series. But we start a new one next week, and I hope you can join us. But until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers, and me, John. So goodbye for now, and may God richly bless you. Oh